In preparing this, it, it struck me that sometimes we read these parables from the wrong side of the line. The first two verses of these parables set out exactly who the parables were written to. And it's not till you start to think about that, that when you read the three parables, which are laid out later, you suddenly realise that when you've been reading about the lost coin, the lost sheep and the lost son, perhaps we've been looking at it from the wrong point of view. Where Jesus is actually talking to the preachers and the teachers at the time, the Pharisees. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we always preach sermons on the prodigal son, the father looking for his son to return, etc. But we miss the fact that Jesus was actually mocking, getting at the establishment, the religious establishment at the time. Simon's already mentioned this, hasn't he? And you're talking about the church should be equipping people to go out. And just sat there, I just suddenly thought, the, the shortest sentence in the English language is go. You know, so we couldn't have a, a simpler message than that, could we? Go. You know, so it's just something to bear in mind, go. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now Jewish society was divided between two classes of people. Just to keep it simple, I'm going to call them saints and sinners. The word sinner in the Bible is not just used, as we do today, for somebody with a, a lack of morals or the lack of following Jesus. In the Bible, it could mean simply that they were Gentiles. They weren't part of the Jewish, uh, Jewish race. Or they had an illness like leprosy. Or we remember the woman with the, the, the blood discharge, etc. So when we see in the Bible the word sinners, don't automatically think of somebody that is amoral. It could just be the way that the Jewish society was at that time or their, or their lives. A lot of these so-called sinners were also, uh, because of their lifestyle, perhaps they were drunkards. And some might have been sexually immoral. Others were the dreaded tax collectors of the Roman society, which was occupying Judea at the time. These sinners didn't pray on their knees, they prayed on their neighbours. That's why the saints gave them the cold shoulder. They were outsiders and outcasts. Religious people saw themselves as the saints. The saints might get defiled by mixing with the sinners. We use the expression, that you know, tarred with the same brush if we mix with those people. The saints were pure Jews, no leprosy or any illness like that. They were morally upright without blemish or so they thought. The saints kept God's letter to the law. Sorry, God's law to the letter. Studying the scriptures with zeal and observing the law in a rigid and uncompromising manner. Chief among the saints were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees were the first century God's police. 
The teachers of the law were professional Bible scholars. Scholars, sorry. <laughs> Between them, they made up the spiritual elite. A huge, they had a huge social standing and political power. Where religion was part of society, they were the in crowd. They assumed that any would-be Bible teacher would seek their approval first. The last thing they were expecting was a would-be rabbi like Jesus, that he would abandon the company of the saints altogether in order to be with the sinners. But that's just what Jesus did. Regardless of the consequences to his his reputation, he not only welcomed these so-called sinners, but he dined with them to the shock and amazement of all concerned. Can you imagine anything so disgusting the saints would be saying to one another? A few years back, I went to Skelmersdale. Now, I don't know if you know Skelmersdale. It's, um, what they call it, a new town that was built up near Liverpool. And I stayed with the minister there called John Chapman. And John was an evangelist to this very large housing estate, I mean, big housing estate. And every day, John's living room would be filled with people off the estate. They would be drinking, talking, and he'd be sharing the gospel with them. And I was shocked to learn a few months later that his funding had been withdrawn from from his mission society because the mission society had come to see him and were not happy that his house was full of people. Why wasn't he out on the streets knocking the doors and in the church evangelising to people? Well, to me, it just struck me, thinking about this passage, that's exactly what Jesus was up against here. I believe John was actually evangelising, John Chapman in in Skelmersdale, was actually evangelising in his front room. He didn't need to go to the church. He didn't need to go... Uh, knocking on doors. People were coming to him to listen to the word of God. And so often we've got these preconceived ideas of exactly how evangelism should be done. We think our evangelism might be we've got to do an Alpha course, we've got to do a Christianity Explored course. What's wrong with going down the pub on Thursday to meet with people? That's where Jesus would be. Jesus would be eating and drinking with these sinners. Not saying that people who go down there are necessarily that way inclined, but... Okay. (laughs) Just like Jesus, I've signed my own death warrant. (laughs) It was socially unacceptable for Jesus, as it eventually turned out, as I said, he was signing his own death warrant. But he was not embarrassed or apologetic about this. On the contrary, the first thing he was, uh, first time, this wasn't the first time he deliberately had a go at religious establishment. The saints seem to have forgotten that in the previous chapter of this book, they had invited him for a meal and he was eating with the Pharisees. And on that particular occasion, Jesus did exactly the same. He challenged their ideas and beliefs. Because it says, on the Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisees, 
uh, sorry, a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. They were looking for him. They were looking out for him to see what he was doing. He caused controversy, controversy at that dinner party. On that occasion, his response to the Pharisees around him was again a parable, or several parables, which challenged the ideas and traditions of his listeners. Healing on a Sabbath, for example. Being invited to a wedding feast. And those other parables that we read about there. He challenged some of their most cherished and preconceived ideas. Jesus does the same here in Luke 15. He finds himself under attack for his policy of eating with sinners. So he again tells a parable. It's not a single parable this time. It's three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and finally the parable of the lost son. It's the first two parables we're going to be looking at today. And I believe Simon's going to do the lost son later at some stage. What does it mean to be lost? It's quite interesting that. If you've lost something, you must have had it in the first place to lose it. You can't lose something you haven't got. It doesn't make sense. So these parables, who was lost and why was it lost? So there are two little questions there. Well, I believe it's us that have lost something. We've lost our relationship with God. Back in the very beginning of the Bible, in creation, at the very first sin of Adam, it's us that lost our relationship. Because of Adam's sin... We lost our closeness. We lost our walk with God. And it's such a shame, isn't it? Let me go on to say about the first parable, then I'll come back to that first sin. The first of the two parables is about the lost sheep. Then Jesus told this parable, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep as lost sheep until he finds it and when he finds it he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says rejoice with me i have found my lost sheep i tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who did not need to re- need to repent now i was talking to graham the other day about sheep and I have it on good authority from Graham that sheep aren't exactly the brightest animal around (laughs) I think he was talking about sheep and not me Um, they will spend most of the time when they get into a field looking at ways of getting out of the field Uh, and they love to follow one another We use the expression, you know, of just like a sheep and he's just following everybody. Now, we've got a problem with this parable in Sussex. Funnily enough, it's got a picture up there. When we think of sheep in a field, like in this parable, there it is, right? I know there's no sheep in there. It's just proved my point, doesn't it? They've all wandered (laughs) off. So we've got this problem, haven't we? we? I daily walk through fields of sheep. I can see them from my bedroom window. Uh, Many of you can. We think of these lush green pastures in the rolling downlands. 
We don't think of the biblical context of this parable, do we? You couldn't be further away from the way the, from what was written in the scriptures. We should think of hot, 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 parched land with small bushes, very little grass, and a sort of scrubland area. The shepherd would try to find the best spot he could for the sheep. Now, just purely for Graham, I tried to look up what sheep they were because we were talking about this, and I believe that they were Jacob's sheep because they were tough sheep. So there we are in this field. One of the sheep thinks to herself, notice I'm being very diplomatic here by saying her. Ready for this joke? (laughs) You could do better than stay here, she thinks to herself. Have you got that, you? So she goes off to find pastures greener. The shepherd has a quick fleece count and finds his one missing. He needs to find her. So he starts a search for her. It's now a search and rescue mission. As Christians, you've heard it said, I keep looking for God, but I can't find him anywhere. I've looked everywhere for him, but I still can't find him. You may have even said it yourself. You may know someone who's saying it. You may even be saying it here today. I'm looking for God, but can't find him. Well, here's some advice. Stop looking and let him find you. Now, it's interesting that Simon mentions about Matthew, the, it, the, the, the um, hotel, isn't it? Somebody just heard the word of God and answered it. it it's just amazing. But, you see, in the 21st century, we don't like the way that parable was written. So I've rewritten it for you in a 21st century slant. Suppose a hundred sheep have a shepherd and the shepherd wanders off. The sheep can't see him. They're not clever enough to see the things the shepherd has given them. The pastures he's put them in by the still waters, which they can drink from. They don't have the patience to wait for his return. So the sheep start to look for the shepherd. One sheep thinks he should look over there. So he goes over there. And all the other sheep think that's a good place to look. But then he changes his mind and he looks over here. And all the other sheep follow. The shepherd in this case God, has provided us, the sheep, with all the good things that we need. And it was interesting because I was talking to Jane about what does, and it might be something we could talk about in life group, what what does God give us? What are the good things that he gives us? Because immediately we think of health, our house, our money, our car, our job. But in reality, they're all material needs, aren't they? What does God actually give us? And it's an interesting point to stop and think, what are our needs? Especially in our Western society. But we... Sorry, I've done that. Um, We love to turn things round. 
But we are the ones who have wandered off. We are the ones that have lost in hiding from God. We are the ones God is looking for. Ever since Adam sinned, God has been looking for us. In Genesis 3, we read, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of God, the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? From that day on, we have been hiding from God, and God has been looking and calling for us. If you are hiding and hear him calling, don't hide anymore. He's waiting to carry us home on his shoulders. He does not make us crawl back to him. He carries you on his back. Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 persons who do not need to repent. The lost coin. I've got a way of getting you all rich and doing Jane a favour, okay? If you come round to our house, I do not put my hands down the back of the settee. You know there were the seats and the thing? I had a dream once of putting my hands down there, pulling them out, it was full of razor blades, and my hands were all, all in shreds and ribbons and things like that. So it's my phobia, if you like. I do not put my hands down the back of the settee. So if you come round to our house and you haven't got that phobia, please could you recover a couple of coins, the television remote, and Jane would be happy because she never backs down there. There's an old mince pie, a broken biscuit, and some peanuts. Okay, so that would be most helpful. Suppose a woman has ten silver coin and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over God, uh, presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Yet again, just like we thought of that, we automatically think of a woman who's lost a, a coin, we'll call it a two-pound coin for, for one of the th- thing. And she can't find it. So she goes and gets her torch and looks under the sideboard or the bed or something like that. But again, that's not how it was written. You've got to think of a house with no windows to start with. You've got to think of a house with dirt on the floor. And when she goes, and there's this, this lost coin, we just think of a coin... It's one day's wages. So we've got to think of a coin, uh, uh, probably about £100 in value today. So you've got a coin that's worth £100 to you. And you've lost it. You can't find this coin anywhere. The only light you've got is perhaps through the open door. But it's somewhere on this dirt floor is this coin. You've got to go and get an oil lamp. Now, oil lamps, I don't know if you know, don't give off a lot of light. You've got to get down on your hands and knees in the dirt to look for this coin. 
Now, the coin being lost still has a value, doesn't it? A coin still has a value even if it's lost. And I deliberately lost the coin so I know exactly where it is. Funny enough, unless someone's mm-hmm. taken it. Now, when it was lost, this pound coin was still worth a pound behind there. But it wasn't worth anything. To, sorry, it still had value of a pound. But it wasn't worth anything to me because I couldn't spend it. I couldn't use it. It was, it was useless to me till I find it. In the same way, God's looking for us because we have value. He has value. We have value to him. But we're useless to him until we're found. Then like the previous parable, once we're found, there will be much rejoicing. So just in summary, if Jesus meets with us, the sinner, be listeners to his word and not just hearers. It's easy to listen to something, isn't it? And not hear what's being said. And just before I stood up here, I just happened to glance through to John, which is the same parable of the sheep and the shepherds. Um, It talks about all those that have ears, let them hear. And so often we listen to God's word, but we don't hear what he is saying. If we're Christians, don't be like the Pharisees and teachers, becoming judgmental of those we meet with, or the way we reach the lost. Remember, we're all sinners at the end of the day. Ask ourselves a question. What are we doing to find the lost? Are we scoffing or are we saving? If you're not a Christian, remember you are of value to God. So stop hiding yourself. Let him find you. Let God use you to the full value he has struck you for. Then you will hear rejoicing of all the saints in heaven and I'm sure you'll hear a few rejoicings here as well.